you have your Bibles, you can open them to Exodus chapter 27. I'm not going to read the verses tonight because they're just really difficult. It's like somebody who doesn't have experience with blueprints reading a blueprint. It just is difficult. And so, but the text I'm teaching from tonight will be Exodus chapter 27, verses 9 through um, 18. Actually, 9 through 19. Would you just pray with me uh, before we begin tonight? Father... I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to open up your word tonight and to teach and really mindful, Lord, that it's not by might and it's not by power, it's by your spirit. And Lord, I pray that you'd flood this place with your presence, Lord God, that you would saturate this atmosphere with such a spirit of wisdom and revelation that would rest on each person here. I pray that you would give us all ears to hear and tender hearts to receive. I pray, Lord God, for the hardened places of our hearts that we've hardened against you and your word. I pray that you'd begin a softening tonight so that people could hear you, Lord, so that they could receive your word, that this would not be a word that would fall on dry ground or hard ground and not produce a harvest, Lord. I, I declare a decree into the atmosphere that this word tonight is going to prosper in hearts and minds, that it's not going to return void. It's not going to get choked out, Lord God. It's going to prosper. So I'm asking you, Father, to change hearts, to change lives, myself included, Lord. We want to see you high and lifted up because you promised that where you are, you'll draw all men unto you. And so I purposely lift you up in this place tonight. I exalt you over every care and every concern and every worry that came through those doors, Lord God. I make you bigger than that. And I exalt your name above sickness, above mental illness, above depression and despair and hopelessness. I exalt your name over heaviness of heart. I exalt your name over financial worries and care and concern. I exalt your name in this place. I lift it up and I make it bigger. With God, I can scale a wall. I can defeat a troop. With God, nothing's impossible. Get that deep down in our spirit tonight, Lord. We testify and confess it with our mouth, but Lord, I pray that we would believe it deep within our hearts. And I pray, Lord God, that there would be complete revelation of your word in the house tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Last week we learned that the tabernacle was a joint project between God and his people. God gave the divine design and then commanded his people to give the materials as an offering to build, to build the tabernacle. We saw that in Exodus chapter 25, verse 2. We see where God told Moses to tell his people to bring him offerings. Now, it's important that we, we revisit that that teaching last week and that you understand that God did not need their offerings. Can I tell you that God doesn't need your tithe? He doesn't need your offering. 
<laughs> he could have built that tabernacle and outfitted it, outfitted the entire uh, uh, place without them. Instead, he gave them an opportunity to invest in what he was doing, to partner with him. And my friends, that is how God accomplishes his purposes here on earth, through our tithes and our offerings. And it's an, awe, it's an awesome privilege that we have. When you and I recognize that our giving allows us to partner with God in his work, nothing should stop us from giving and giving and giving. We should really get it deep within our soul. I promise you, there is no greater investment you can make. There is nothing you can find that will give you a greater return on your money than giving it to the Lord. He says, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be dumped into your lap. The Bible says the measure that we use to give to him will be measured back to us. You see, this isn't about mutual funds or stocks or bonds or 401ks. This isn't about finding the best long-term or short-term investment. This is about a promise from a promise-keeping God that if we give to him, it will be given back to us in good measure, pressed down, shaken together, overflowing in our life. Do you believe that? And the more we prove ourselves faithful with the little he gives, the more he can entrust with us, to us. And that's what he was saying to the people of Israel. He was saying, what you have, I want you to understand, I gave to you anyway. And so I'm just asking you to give it back to me in an offering. And that's what they did. They brought materials for the tabernacle in an offering. And we, we talked last week about how the tabernacle was a picture of God's presence with his people. Some of you are here tonight. And for you, God is far off and distant. In your mind, he's a God of judgment and a God to fear, a God who's busy running the universe but doesn't care about your life. And can I tell you that's a lie from the pit of hell. This is the God who loves his people so much he came near. He's a God who wants to be known. He wants to be the center of your life. He wants to be the center of your thoughts and day-to-day -day living. He is Emmanuel, the God who's with us. And he wants, wants you to live aware of his presence in your midst. And that was the message he was sending to the Israelites in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was his idea. Moses and the Israelites did not go to him and say, hey, God, could you think about coming down to us? It was his idea. He initiated it. He wanted to dwell among his people and assure them of his presence in their lives. And he gave them explicit instructions uh, for the design of his sanctuary, of the tabernacle. And he expected those instructions to be followed. And that was really important because, you see, God was telling a story with this design of the tabernacle. You will find out that there is spiritual significance in every piece of furniture, every type of material used, and in all the ways it was set up and designed. As we start tonight, you'll be like, Rhea, do I really need to have that many details? But I promise you, God is in the details. And it's going to start making so much sense to you as we go along. God was going to use the tabernacle to reveal truth about himself to the Israelites and now to you and I as we study it. 
Let's take a look at the tabernacle together. I believe uh, Leah has a picture in your notebook. And Don, I'd like you to put it on the screen. I want you to just get me the general picture of the tabernacle. I think it's gold, Don, on your, on your, uh, on your computer. There it is. Oh, good job. Uh, now, remember, the tabernacle was mobile. It was, a, it was prefabricated so that it could be packed up and moved at will. You see, God wanted his people to know that he would go with them wherever they went. And he wants you and I to know that too, that he is Emmanuel, God who's with you everywhere you go, he goes. One of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 139 says, when I, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there you are. You can't run from God. He is Emmanuel, God who's with you. He sees all that you do. He sees all that's been done to you. He is with you like a mighty warrior. So the tabernacle was portable and could be packed up and taken with them. But even when traveling, it could be stationed in the middle of the people. Don, do you have the other picture where it shows the tabernacle in the middle of the camp? Do you see how the tabernacle is that thing there in the middle with the fire coming out of it? And do you see how the camps are set up around the tabernacle? And so the tabernacle, God's presence, was in the midst of the camp. And when they picked up and packed up and began to go wherever it was they were going through the wilderness, the tabernacle in the lineup of the, of, of the, the troops as they marched, the tribes as they marched through the wilderness, the tabernacle was found in the middle of that pack. Even as they, as they were mobile and went through the wilderness, the tabernacle stayed in the middle of the camp. God was saying, I want to be in the center of your life. I want to be in the center of all that you're doing. God wants to be in the center of our life. In your notebooks, you'll see a picture of how the 12 tribes, Don, if you could put that one up, how the 12 tribes were arranged around the tabernacle and the number of the people in the tribe is listed there. Remember, this number does not include the women and the children. Do you see how the 12 tribes are divided around the tabernacle? Do you see that picture and then the numbers out to the side? That is the number of people in, in each tribe. Look at the amount of people that would have been, been camping around that tabernacle. Now, Don, go back to that other picture that you had up previously that looks like a cross. Nope, the next one. Look at that. If you see how they camped, look, even God was, was designing a picture for them, even in the way they camped. What does that look like to you? Doesn't it look like the cross? And he was sending them a message. This was all about Jesus. He was sending them a message. Do you see why we're studying this? It's powerful. Also, in your notebook, if you want more, more we're going to get into a little bit more detail later on about the tribes and how they were camped and how they were stationed around the tabernacle. Uh, but, but if you want to leave and go study it this week, you can find it in Numbers 2. It's very fascinating. You'll have all these numbers con confirmed uh, if you look at it in, in Numbers 2. But, but flip over, Don. There's another picture of fire coming out. Uh, and I believe it's, you have this one in your notebook as well. Can, do you see how all of the tribes were camped around that tabernacle? So can you imagine every morning waking up, every night stepping out of your tent 
and seeing that sight. It was confirming the visible presence of God. It would have been obvious. It would have been a visible reminder of his presence with them, guiding and directing them. Look at, notice the fire coming out of what is known as the Holy of Holies. That's where the presence of God was. And, and, and remember, I told you that the tabernacle, among other things, prefigures Christ. It's a picture, a type, a shadow of Christ. But it also is a type and shadow of you and me. If you look at the tabernacle, and I don't want to get ahead of myself because we're going to study it, but if you look at the dimensions in the tabernacle and all the measurements that were taken, they are all body measurements. Uh, Davey, help me. What was the one here? A cubic. A cubit is from your elbow to your pointer finger. A, a foot is a literal foot. Um, a hand breath was from your pinky to, to your thumb. If you look at all of the measurements that God gives them, they are all body measurements. <laughs> I will go into it eventually, and I will talk to you about how the tabernacle itself is our body. It's a picture of our body. But we're going to focus for the next couple weeks on Christ and the picture that it is of Christ. But remember, I told you that it's a type and shadow of us as well. Because the Bible says that you and I are the what? The temple of the Holy Spirit. The tabernacle of his Holy Spirit. Body, soul, spirit. The spirit inside of us, the holy of holies. You don't believe me? What happened in the upper room when the Holy Spirit came? What was on their heads? Tongues of fire on the holy of holies. Do you just love that? Coming out of the holy of holies. So there's so much to learn about the connection in scripture with the tabernacle and Christ and the tabernacle and you and I. So let's look again, Don, at the picture of all the tribes camping around. It's the one with all of that one. Um, the, I want you to notice the picture uh, of, uh, of the tabernacle here, uh, the location of the tabernacle. Do you see where the tribe of Judah is? Do you see here the camp of Judah on the right-hand side? The, the entrance to the tabernacle was on that side. Uh, Don, can you give me another picture of uh, the, the tabernacle that you can see the gate out front? That'll do. See this entrance down here? The tribe of Judah would be camped right in front of that entrance. So in order to get into the tabernacle, what would you have to go through? The tribe of Judah. Remember. The tabernacle is a picture of Jesus. It's a type and shadow of Jesus. Jesus is the what? The lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah means, does anybody know what the word Judah means? Praise. Uh, Psalm 100 verse 4 says, we enter his gates. See the gate? We enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts. See the court? His courts with what? Praise. There is nothing that's a coincidence in this tabernacle. I, I want you to tell me, by looking at that picture, how many entrance places do you see to get into the tabernacle? One. Do you see that, that, that curtain all around the tabernacle? And do you see the little altar of fire? It's the brazen altar. We're going to study that next week. The veil would have been, the, the gate would have been right in front of that, on this side right here. 
but there was one entrance point to the tabernacle. That fence all around it protected unlawful entrance. There was one way to get in that tabernacle. Oh, can I tell you, there is one way to God, and it's through Jesus Christ. It's through the lion of the tribe of Judah. Do you see it? The tabernacle was split into three areas. Do you see it across the top there? There's the outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. As we said last week, uh, the tabernacle is a type uh, and shadow of Christ, but it's also a picture of our life. And we are the temple, the tabernacle of his Holy Spirit. The Israelites could, could, could enter the outer court, this part out here, with the burnt offering and the labor, but they could not go any further. Only priests could go into the holy place. What does the word of God say that you and I are now? Priests, royal priesthood. And, and the area behind that, the Holy of Holies, only the high priest could go into that area and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And we're going to study more about that. I'm just giving you an overview right now. Do you see that curtain that goes all the way around the tabernacle? Tonight, we're going to talk about that and the entranceway. You say, Maria, is that it? Oh, my goodness. I, I could preach till I was blue in the face just on that. I'm going to get you out of here by 8 tonight. It's going to be a miracle, but we are going to do it. But, but you can see that the tabernacle stood in an open area of land. It was 100, and get this, it was 100 cubits long and 50 cubits wide. It was enclosed by a curtain of fine twine linen. Exodus 27, 9 through 19 tells us that these linen curtains were suspended, and don't miss this, from 60 pillars, 20 of which stood on, on, on the south side, 20 which stood on the north side, and 10 on the west, and 10 on the east. So 60 pillars total. And surrounding that area was a curtain. And the curtain was of, of fine linen, Egyptian linen, top-notch, not linen like you and I wear, almost like silk linen. And it was white, and it surrounded that whole area. And it was five cubits high, which is about seven and a half feet. Do you know what the number five stands for as a prophetic number? Grace. It's a picture of being surrounded by grace. Can I just tell you, you and I have been saved by grace through faith. This is all a work of grace right here. We're going to talk about how to get into the presence of God. And the only way I can get into the presence of God is because of Jesus. That he graced me. He forgave me. He washed me and make me, made me white as snow. He, began, he became a mediator between me and God. And he made a way for me to get to God. Do you understand that? That is a work of grace. Is it any wonder that that curtain is five cubits high the whole way around? God is sending us a message message of grace. It was white in color. You see, this fence, it was really a line of demarcation. It was a, a mark of separation between the outside world and God's presence. You see, the people knew that God's presence was in there, and they were out here. And the thing that separated them from God's presence was this white curtain, this white linen curtain. And that white linen curtain, according to Revelation, is a picture of righteousness and purity. 
It is God's high standard of righteousness. Who knows that God is perfect? He is holy. There is nothing, nothing unholy in him. What do you need to be able to come into the presence of a holy God? How good do you have to be? Perfect. How are you doing with that? And so he is over here and we are out here and we are separated because of unrighteousness, because of our sin keeps us out of his presence. Do you get that? And that curtain, that white linen curtain would have served as a reminder to the people of the contrast between the righteousness of God and the sinfulness of man. That curtain was man-made. It was a man-made barrier. Can I tell you, sin is a man-made barrier between God and us. He didn't want that to be a barrier. We did it. That linen curtain said, you can go this far and no farther, keep out. In my subdivision, many of you have come to my house and you've seen this. All of the streets around my subdivision are closed. They're, they're putting in a new, uh, new street, going a new bypass, I guess, in Waukesha. And my house is right in the midst of all of it. And so every street in my neighborhood is closed. You, you drive down the road and you get to this do not enter sign or, or street close sign or, uh, you know, uh, everywhere you go. Am I lying? Those of you that have been to my house for study, is that, am I right? Every place you go, you get this do not enter sign. And it's so frustrating. We used to have a whole lot of ways into my subdivision. Now we have one and it's hard to find. And it's so very, very frustrating. And Dave was taking his mom to the doctor, and, and, and he was really irritated because these do not enter signs, if you try hard enough, you can enter, and you can get out the other way. And you, it's for through traffic, and, but for no through traffic. It was for local traffic. And he said, well, you know, he knew, even though it said do not enter, he thought he could just sneak through and nobody was ever going to know. And, and so he did. He snuck through with his 85-year-old mother. And, and all of a sudden, he looks in his rearview mirror and there are siren lights going. And, and he paid a dear penalty for do not enter and trying to enter in a do not enter sign. And, but that fence was a do not enter. It was like the streets to my house where it's closed off and said, you can go this far and no farther. This is closed to through traffic. Those curtains would have been seven and a half feet high. The normal man would not be able to see over them. If you tried to get over them, you were unlawful. You see, Jesus says he is the way. He is the only way. And those who come any other way are thieves and robbers. And so that fence was put up there. It was this, this constant reminder about the, the righteousness of God and the sinfulness of man. That white linen curtain, uh, it, was, it was like the law. It was like the law was given. The law was given as a tutor or a standard to show us the righteousness of God, what God expects of us, and anything short of that is sin. And we all, every one of us, fall short of that standard. But that law points us to our need of Jesus. The law showed us what sin was and what God expects of us. And Jesus said he didn't come to, he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. He came to live out a perfect life for us. He came to demonstrate a, sinful, a sinless life, a righteous life, and become our substitute. 
He took our sin and he imputed his righteousness to us. We are now the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Do you understand that? And this is what this is a picture of. Each of those um, uh, uh, curtains were held up by a pillar. If you look in Exodus 27, you'll see that. A pillar speaks of uprightness, of strength, of stability. <laughs> Again, it's pointing to Jesus. Those pillars held up that linen curtain. Do you know there were 60 of those pillars? Do you know how many men there are listed in the genealogy of Christ between Adam and Christ? 60. 60 upright men until Jesus, the perfect fulfillment of this tabernacle, came. Do you just love that? Do you love that that's how smart my God is? So again, it points to Christ. And there were 60 in total, and each pillar placed, were placed five cubits apart. Again, the number five. Again, grace we see. The, the pillars, the, the commentators debate whether the pillars were wood covered in bronze or if they were just wood, because it's not listed in our scripture. But they were pillars that were stuck, and this we do know, in sockets of bronze. A socket was a thing that you put in the ground to hold the, the pillar in place. Bronze, in the word of God, anytime you read bronze or brass, it's, it's a symbol, it's symbolic of judgment against sin. I want you to see that the fence rests on bronze, on judgment. The righteousness, the thing that is symbolic of righteousness is upheld by bronze, which stands for judgment. In Ezekiel, we see Christ as a man whose appearance was like the appearance of brass, he says. In Daniel and Revelation, we see Jesus' feet pictured as having feet of brass. Uh, I want you to see that God must judge sin. It's who he is. He's perfect in righteousness. Our righteousness is of filthy rags. Do you understand that? And Christ is the mediator. He is our righteousness. This fence rests and is upheld by judgment. These bronze pillars uh, are capped. If you read through that scripture, the, it says that, that, that they, were, they were in sockets of bronze, which, which symbolizes judgment. Then there was a pillar, which symbolized uprightness or, 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 or strength or right standing. And then it's capped with silver. Oh, do you know what silver symbolizes in the word of God? It stands for redemption. It stands for redemption. If you flip over to Exodus chapter 30, I believe. Let me just find that. Chapter 30, verses 11 through 16. I want you to see something. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord. When you number them, there will be no plague among them when you number them. And this is what everyone among those who are numbered shall give. Half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. Everyone included among those who are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering to the Lord. The rich shall not give more than the poor, and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel. 
when you give an offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. And you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourself. You see, the silver was, was, was given as atonement money, as money to redeem or atone for their household. Everybody gave a half shekel. It didn't matter what your financial standing was. It was required of everybody to give that. The same price for all. Can I tell you what? Christ paid the same price. There, there, for you, for me, for everybody, there was one price paid, and his name is Jesus, the precious blood of Jesus. You see, the Bible says that you weren't redeemed. Uh, you Oh, let's just look at it. Let's quote it perfectly, because I don't want you to miss it, that you were not, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life you inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus. So you see, when those Israelites looked at that fence that surrounded the tabernacle that kept them out, they would have been made aware of, of their sinful state and the righteousness of God that, that separated them. But it was a picture for you and I of the righteousness of Christ. That he, that he came for you and I. That, that from Adam <laughs> to, to Christ, there were 60 men, 60 pillars that needed to come before Christ came to fulfill this. That he would be the righteousness that you and I need. That, that our sin separated us separated us from God, but there was one mediator named Christ who came to stand in the gap for us, to, 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 to make it right for us, to, to take the price that we needed to pay for our sin upon himself, and he paid the penalty, and he became a sin for us so that we could be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, and now we can enter into the very presence of God. Do you understand the significance? behind this curtain. There were 10 pegs, oh, 10 pegs that each of those pillars were hammered into the ground and they were bronze 10 pegs. And I, I was just about to ignore it and just move on because I thought I've given you enough information. And then I turned over to Hosea 11.4. Isaiah 22.23. Isaiah says, I will drive him like a peg, speaking of Jesus, into a firm place, and he will become a seat of honor for the house of his father. That tent peg, that tent peg anchored that linen curtain, anchored it from the wind, anchored it from, from, from any storms, and it was, it was anchoring that tabernacle. Oh, can I tell you, we have an anchor in Christ Jesus. We are secure in him. Tied to those pillars was a cord, and, and that's the Hosea scripture that says, I drew them it, it, with gentle cords and with bands of love. The cords held that curtain together, held it, held it firmly in place. Oh, can I tell you, you are held firmly in place with the love of Christ. There is nothing in this whole world that could separate you from the love of Christ. No sin is big enough to separate you from the love of Christ. And that is the picture that we see with that curtain. You see, the curtain is this thing all the way around the outside. And it was on the north and the south at the west side. 
And, and, and that, that curtain was a barrier to keep people from the presence of God. And so the whole way around, it, it was, there, was, it was, there were no entrance places. I could follow that curtain the whole way around, and I would not be able to get into the presence of God. There was only one way. But you see, if I was determined enough to get into the presence of God, I would just follow that curtain and say, there's got to be an end somewhere. There's got to be an end. And eventually, that curtain, which, remember, is a picture of the law, the tutor that would lead us to Jesus, oh, that would show us our sinfulness and lead us to Jesus. If I followed that curtain the whole way around, am I losing you? If I followed that curtain the whole way around, eventually it would lead me to that entrance, to the gate, the word of God says. It says the gate. Do you see that in your scripture? The gate. The gate marked the way of approach into the tabernacle. God designed it that way. There was one way in and only one gate. God has always had only one way to him, and that is through his son, Jesus Christ. There was one entrance to that court, one entrance to the tabernacle, and it had to be done God's way. There was no shortcut. All other entrances would have been closed off. You see, you're, some of you are here tonight, and you're saying, Rhea, I don't like that. There are many ways to God. I'm sorry, but you have to take that up with him. He says there is one way. There is no other way to the Father except through the Son. Muhammad doesn't do it. Uh, Buddha doesn't do it. Uh, What is it that you think your, your good deeds don't do it? There is no other way to God except through Jesus Christ. There is one way. And there was one entrance in this tabernacle to the presence of God. And it was through the gate. Through the gate. Jesus said, I am the gate. In John 10, 9, he says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. Acts 4.12 says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to all mankind by which we must be saved. There is no other way. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. I want you to know that there are three veils, three entrance ways there. Three, do you see it? The gate, the door, and the veil. Do you see it? The way, the truth, and the life. The linen curtains were meant to lead people to the gate, just like the law is meant to lead people to their need for Jesus. The gate was open to all people. But to get into the sanctuary, into the tabernacle, you had to go the way God set up. I want you to see that there are four corners on that courtyard. It's symbolic of the four corners of the world. In the front, and we don't have a good picture, and I'm just so sorry about this. Uh, In the front, there is the gate, and and God describes it. He says, I I want you to do, uh, in fact, let's just take a peek at it. Because we don't have a picture. I want to make sure that you see it uh, in, in the scripture. He gets to the gate of the court in verse 16. Now, this is on the east side. He said, for the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long, woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen made by a weaver. And it shall have four pillars and four sockets. Now we're down to four pillars. 
And these four pillars are symbolic of the four Gospels pointing you to Jesus. All the pillars around the court shall have, and there's your bands of silver. Uh, but, but, but those four posts that held the curtain. Now, this entrance on the east side, do you see how it had white linen on each side? And then there was that little space where there was a, a curtain made of purple and, and red and blue. Do you see the gate there? That was an actual veil or, or, or um, piece of fabric that was designed in colors to show them the entrance way. Everybody had to come in the same way. Now, that gate would have been narrow compared to the other side. Do you see how the, 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 the north side was, was 100 cubits? The, the, the south side was 100 cubits? The, the west side was 50? And now this was divided, and so the, the gate would have been smaller. Because you see, narrow is the road that leads to, Christ, to life. Do you, do you see that? He is the narrow gate, not a broad gate. He's narrow. And even though people would still be able to get through that, it was not nearly as broad an entranceway as it could have been. He could have opened the left side. He could have opened the north side. He could have opened the whole south side, but he didn't. He gave it one little entranceway because narrow is the way. Hanging over the gate was a screen, or the NIV says a curtain made of blue, purple, scarlet yarn, and finely twisted linen. The curtain was four colors, and that four speaks of the four Gospels, and the Gospels, of course, being pointing to the saving work, the saving work of Christ. Linen, again, speaks of purity and, and Christ and our righteousness. He is sinless perfection. Blue is symbolic of heaven. It speaks of his heavenly origin. It, Jesus was sent from heaven. He is God, God incarnate. Purple speaks of royalty speaks of his royal character. He is our soon-coming king. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And scarlet, it's the color of blood. It's a picture of sacrifice, a picture of a sacrificial death for us, the one who gave his life for us, the perfect sacrifice. We have redemption through his blood. James Strong says we should read these colors in the gate and the entranceway the way we would read a code, seeing the message Heaven's royal blood purchases purity. You see it? Heaven, the blue. Heaven's royal, the purple. Blood, the red. Purchase purity, the white. Do you see it? Heaven's royal blood purchases purity. And that is the way into the presence of God. It will only be by the one who is sinless, spotless, king of kings, sent from heaven, who paid the price for our redemption with his blood. So good. The tabernacle always faced east, and you go, went west to go towards the presence of God. There was only one door and one entrance to the outer court, and it was on the east side. East is important. If you look at Scripture, east always was symbolic of moving away from God. Going west was always coming towards him. So after entering the gate, one would move west towards the tabernacle. We see over and over in Scripture uh, the, the, the symbolism of, of East. In the Garden of Eden, when God drove out man from the garden, he placed the entrance with the flaming sword on the east side of the garden. 
When Cain went out of the presence of God, he, and he, he went to dwell in Nod, he, it was east of Eden. When Lot and Abraham separated from each other, Lot journeyed east and dwelt in Sodom. And the entrance into the presence of God was in the east. And people would make their way west, not east, away from God, but west towards God. Where does the sun rise? In the east, where light rises out of darkness, where the light comes forth. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Do you think it's a coincidence that the gate that symbolizes Jesus is on the east side where the sun rises? When Jesus returns, Matthew 24, 28 says, For as lightning that comes from the east is visible, even in the west, so will be the coming of man. Man, God, Christ, will come on the e from the east. In Ezekiel 43, God gives Ezekiel a vision of the Son of Man entering the millennial temple from the east, through the eastern gate. This is in Israel. Uh, this is a true picture. This is an actual picture of the eastern gate in Israel. And now, Davy, correct me if I'm wrong here, but, but Scripture seems to identify that when God comes, he's coming back, he's going to touch down on the Mount of Olives, right, and enter into the temple through the eastern gate. Hmm. So I think it started with the Muslims, and they decided that they were going to seal up the eastern gate because if he's coming back, He's not getting through there. Like, that could stop God. It just makes me chuckle. And, and then that got knocked down, and then so there, several, I like, what, Davey, three times it got sealed back up. This is what it looks like today if you go to Israel. Um, and, and so what's interesting to me is that the Muslims built, if you look really closely, you can see there's a graveyard right there. They decided that if he's coming back, and if that isn't sealed shut, and he can get through that, let's have another plan. Let's build a graveyard, because he's a Jew, and what won't Jews touch? Dead people will defile them. They'll be defiled by, by, by dead people or graves, so they won't touch that. So let's build a cemetery right in front of the eastern. That'll keep them out. Those people want a front row seat when Jesus touches down on the Mount of Olives, and they're believing that the dead in Christ will rise, and they want to be front row and center. So fascinating, isn't it? That's why the tabernacle's on the east side. The entrance is on the east side because Jesus is touching down the Mount of Olives and he's going to enter through the eastern gate. We love it. But next week, the brazen altar, fascinating. So I have to just preach one little thing. This week I was studying. Turn over to Hebrews 4. You don't want to miss this. This will take me two seconds, I promise you. This week I was studying and I was like, Lord, is there any way I could teach about the Holy of Holies now and then back up to all this stuff because I want to teach this one little verse. And so I felt like God said if I just was methodical in the way I went through this tabernacle that it would be okay if I just gave you this little snippet tonight. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 4 verses 15 and 16. Here's your preach. For we do not have a high priest. Jesus, the high priest. We're going to learn about the high priest in the tabernacle, and you're going to see a picture of Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Here's my favorite. Let us, therefore, 
come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Y'all know that scripture, right? See that veil right there going into the Holy of Holies? Massive, massive, thick, major, incredibly thick veil. When Jesus died on the cross of Calvary and he said, it is finished, remember that? Sin debt paid in full. You're now the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Remember that. You can't come into God's presence because you're sinful. He's holy. I'm going to pay the price. It is finished. Your sin debt is finished. What happened? Does anybody know? The veil was rent from the top to the bottom. Not from the bottom to the top. The top to the bottom. And wait till you find out how thick that veil is. It's a major thing. Okay, that veil. And that veil was rent so that we, that's what this scripture is about, so that now we don't have to say, am I holy or am I not holy? Am I full of sin? What if God shoots me dead? What if I just get knocked over dead because I enter his presence? And I... God loves you so much. He wants you in his presence. That he did everything he could do so that now you can come boldly into his presence. And that word boldly, it, it, it's so interesting. It means unreserved. It means that you, have, you say whatever you want. It comes from the word Rio, where I got my name. It comes from the root word Rio, which means to flow forth, to utter forth. Can you believe God named me that? That's what my mom called me all my life, Rio. Um, and it means to flow forth. To, to flow forth and utter words. And it means that I can come boldly. I can just tell God everything about my life, everything I'm going through, all my pain, all my heartache, all my disappointments. I can be unreserved. I don't even need to worry about what he's going to think about me. I can come boldly. But here is what I saw this week that I had never seen before. It says, let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace, five, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. I wonder if any of you are in the time of need. God invites you to come boldly into his presence to find help. That word help. If you flip over to Acts 27, 17, Paul was going to, he was going somewhere, I think, to Rome. And he said to the guys, I perceive that destruction is probably going to come. There's a storm coming, and it's not going to end well, and they decide to sail anyway. And at one point, the boat starts breaking apart starts falling apart, <laughs> and they say, get some cables and tie it together. Cables, same word as help, means frapping. If you don't know what frapping is, I didn't. I looked it up. It means help, but it means frapping a vessel. All of those ropes were used in case they got into a storm and their boat started falling apart. They would feed those ropes underneath, Paul used cables underneath, and they would wrap that boat back together in the storm, and they would tie it, so, tie it tightly so it would hold together when it thought it was falling apart. And you see, Paul, his crew began to toss everything. They, they were doing everything they could to fix it themselves, and they were throwing away cargo and exerting all kinds of energy. And Paul says, let's wrap it. 
And Jesus uses the same word when he says, you can come boldly into my presence and you can find frapping in your time of need. When you think you're in a storm of mass proportion and your whole boat is falling apart, you feel like everything is, is, is just falling apart in your life. You can find help. He wants to frap you. He wants to wrap you in his loving arms and hold you together in the midst of the storm. If that doesn't preach, I don't know what does. That is so good. If that isn't good to you, you have never been in a storm of that kind of mass proportion. Because if you're in a storm tonight, let me just tell you what. Come boldly into the presence of my Jesus. And you find help, precious one. He wants to frap you. He wants to wrap you together and hold you together. When you think your world is falling apart, you find grace in your time of need. That is my Jesus.